What's up, guys? This is the Dirty Daddy, Chris Dickinson, and you are listening to the one, the only, Wrestle In. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Ohio, konnichiwa, konbanwa, and welcome to Noob Japan. This is a Wrestle In podcast in which we explore the wonderful world of Japanese pro wrestling, one wrestler at a time, through the lens of an enthusiast and a noob. Playing the part of the noob will be myself for this episode, Kieran R.H., and I am joined by my go-to guy for all things Joshi. He's a fellow columnist for Wrestle In, and he also writes for our friends at Monthly Pura Resu, the Joshi General himself, Trent Burad. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on board once again to ramble at length about one of my favourite things in the world, Joshi Wrestling. I think you may be the first repeat guest. You uh, earlier in the series was on to talk about Lulu Pencil and now another Joshi and uh, Mayu Iwatani we're going to be talking about today. Beautiful. It's, uh, it's an honour to be the first repeat guest on Noob Japan, um, both times as the quote-unquote enthusiast slash expert. So um, clearly I'm getting a big head with this kind of thing. <laughs> it's for good reason. But before we jump into talking about Mayu, I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, we're recording this. It's now 2022, and I wanted to get your thoughts on Sardom's 2021. You know, you wrote a tremendous column for WrestleWin discussing the remarkable growth that they had as both a company and the individual wrestlers themselves. But what were your personal highlights of Stardom in 2021? Look, it's been... I, I make no attempts to hide my thoughts on this. I think it's potentially been the best year Stardom's had. I've been watching now since about 2016, 2017, and there's been a lot of great years there. But this has been the most consistent from start to finish, delivering like a full product from the top of the card, the mid card, growing stars and stuff it's just been so consistent and that's really been the big highlight and i think that's why it's growing as well as it has it's not only they're delivering top tier wrestling which they always have the top of the card has always been impressive this is where uh io shirai came from this is where curry sane slash curry hojo came from so it's no surprise they were able to do top tier talent but now you can watch a stardom show from the very first match to the main event and you're getting quality and i think that's what's really begun to shine favorite things you've got stuff like starlight kids hill turn you've got utami uh, hashishita really finding her own as a main eventer despite only being 23 the growth of young wrestlers like saya kamatani unagi sayaka and just seeing those who have worked hard start to get there uh, just desserts people like shuri has been uh, working and toiling away in mma and wrestling for years now she's seeing the success that her hard workers are uh, earned her really yeah, I mean, Shuri is a uh, Shuri, even. Um, I was amazed when I learned her name was pronounced Shuri. I always just imagined it was <laughs> Sayuri or something. Um, mm. But yeah, no, she clearly has become arguably the biggest name for stardom this past year. Uh, you know, there's any time someone mentions wrestler of the year, regardless whether it's the male or female category, she's always up there and everyone. If, if anyone knows who she is, then she is in their discussion for best wrestler of 2021. Absolutely. Her body of work from the very beginning of the year to literally the last show of the year has just been absolutely stellar to the point where when I was doing my five star Grand Prix, that's their tournament uh, review on WrestleIn, I had to make two separate best matches lists. I had to do a best matches and a best matches not featuring Shuri because she was literally like she had in nine matches or well, ten matches, including the final. She really had seven or eight matches that could have gone on that top five, top ten list. That's how good she was just in that couple of month block. Yeah, it sounds like it's something that in that obviously everyone massively appreciates it in the moment. But I think 
as we look back as time goes on, you look back at, you know, fellow wrestling columnist Ryan Dilbert has a great year of years uh, series mm. where he looks at a, be- a wrestler's best year. And I feel like in the years to come, you know, as history goes on and we look back at the history of Stardom and Shuri, that this will be seen as her big year. This will be the year Shuri cemented herself as one of the greats. Absolutely. And I mean, like, she's so ingrained with the global success that Stardom's having because she was at the forefront of that June match with Utami uh, Hayashishita that got the global attention, that got Dave Meltzer giving it 5.5 stars. And even though people are a little bit split on just how good that match was, I don't think anyone can argue that it's probably the most important match that Stardom's ever had, just in terms of getting that broad appeal. They've always had a niche appeal, obviously, um, but now that really put them on the map and had them getting compared on the kind of level that WWE, AEW and New Japan kind of get compared to on the regular, on a global scale. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether you agree or disagree with Meltzer and how popular his style rating system is, there's merit mm. to it and that it brings attention to matches and it's never been more evident than in that match. Um, I don't necessarily agree that it was that good. I think there's plenty of stardom matches in the past that have happened that I much prefer. But mm. I can, I'm glad it got the attention to bring the eyes to stardom, like you said. Yeah, and as someone who writes about stardom, I'm really happy because it's bringing a whole wealth of people who are interested and curious in the product. And what I mean, what I set out to do with my writing was to give those new uh, fans and readers and a platform to learn about the product. Because I know when I started getting into Japanese wrestling, I didn't really know a whole lot about it. And there was limited sort of Western uh, content to really get to dive deep in. So, you know, I really appreciated finding that kind of stuff on New Japan. So I wanted to provide that for stardom. And I'm seeing a lot of people coming in and they're, they're hungry to know what's going on. They see this incredible in-ring product and they want to know what these characters are, know who these people are. So, you know, getting the chance to inform them and stuff like Noob Japan, this podcast, opens up that uh, boundary for people to really begin to know what is this beyond just really good wrestling. Well, if it isn't clear already, the great thing about getting Trent on this podcast is that I can basically say any Joshi wrestler and Trent is like, yep, cool, no problem. He doesn't even need to prep. He's going to be able to talk about them at length with ease. Well, I mean, you've you've also picked not just any Joshi wrestler, but, you know, probably my... Look, I I spout the the wonders of Jungle Kiona, but my Watani is really probably my favourite long-term all-time women's wrestler. Joshi, Weston, whatever you want to say. She's an incredible talent, an incredibly special person, which I can't wait to talk about. Well, that's why I wanted you to enlighten me on her, because I've not seen tons of stardom, and everything I have seen is more for when I do my on-this-day gifts from Mm. years past so i haven't seen much of mayu for the past year but her stuff from years gone it absolutely blows me away which is why you know from what i've seen she is my favorite stardom wrestler but i don't follow it i'm not ingrained in the stories i'm watching it on just a a match in its own vacuum Mm. it's funny you say that because obviously you know some of the matches you've been showcasing are not just some of the best matches mayu had but you know for example her feud with io shirai i think in my opinion, has produced the best matches Stardom have put forward ever. 
Um, but this past year, that 2021 year she had, she was a little bit under the radar. You know, she's taken a step back and there are other wrestlers that got, got a chance to shine. So you wouldn't necessarily see a lot of on this day, 2021, Mayu Iwatani matches. But what she's been doing in this past year has been really establishing her storytelling and her character work, which it's always been good. But you can really see the development she's had from, you know, growing through as a mid-carder and an early main eventer to now being the icon of stardom, as she's called, and with good reason. So we're already pretty deep into discussion of Fumayu, but before we go mm. any further, of course, Dave Meltzer has the five-star rating system, as we've already said. But here mm -hmm. at Noob Japan, we have the 10-star Noob rating system to see how much knowledge our Noob already has about the wrestler we're going to be discussing. Of course, for this episode, I am the Noob. So I'm going to rate myself out of 10 and I'm going to give myself a solid four. I've seen Ooh. a solid chunk of her work, as I've said. Um, mm -hmm. I feel, you know, I could comfortably call her my favorite based on what I've seen of her and others mm. in Spartan. And thanks to speaking to you and, you know, your Twitter and you wrote a fantastic feature on Mayu for a wrestling as well, which is potentially one of my favorite features last year. I learned so much that I didn't know and she was already kind of my favorite and it just cemented her as being my favorite but at the same time as i said i've seen her matches in a vacuum i don't know the overarching stories mm. i couldn't tell you who she really is i couldn't tell you the name of any of her moves i could tell you you mm. know like what the move is but not what her name of the move is like you know the rock <laughs> the rock bottom's just an urinagi the rock just named mm. um i couldn't tell you that for mayu but in the grand scheme of things i'd say i i know a good few bullet points about her but there's just not much depth to those points yeah, I mean, there's obviously you can pick up a certain amount from watching matches. And as you said, watching them in the vacuum, you get an idea for her pure skill. Uh, but the surrounding story can be a little bit hard to pick up, especially because at the end of the day, wrestling will tell an in-ring story. And any sort of references they're making to matches that have come and gone, you kind of need to already know those matches to get the references they're making. Otherwise, it's just a cool move. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same. It's one of the joys of professional wrestling, isn't it? If you put the time and attention into it, then you will be rewarded with little throwbacks to old things that you'll pick up on if you know the history. And then in my mm. case, case, like you mentioned, it's just something really cool. But for those who know, it has far more depth and importance. Absolutely. And I mean, look, Mayo Watani, she's the kind of wrestler who it's not necessarily she's filling her matches like, say, Okada Omega, where like everything's almost a reference to something else has happened. But there's definitely that build up in matches, especially with heated opponents. So I know like if you're looking at Mayo Watani's history, one of the wrestlers you really have to look at is Kagetsu, um, who was a wrestler who... Entered stardom around 2016 and she ended up retiring at the end of 2000, well, the start of 2020. She announced her retirement in 2019. But, like, their story is one where it's just constantly building and building and building. So you see their first match, and it's a very typical first match. Neither of them have really developed their characters fully. But as they continue to progress, Kagetsu starts to lean fully into her kind of villainous, roguish style. Uh, you know, cheating, she's using mist, she's using uh, referee distractions, and Mayawatani starting to come into her own as like that true baby face like no matter even if she does things that are kind of heelish and stardom's great at not having um defined you must be a heel or you must be a face and you must abide by those things Mayawatani is not afraid to heal it up in the right circumstance but against someone like Kagetsu who is more on that sort of leaning towards the heelish side she plays that true baby face 
I, I guess like in the best comparison for someone like yourself who you knows New Japan Pro Wrestling, it's Tanahashi. He's the classic good ace. Everyone wants to support him and cheer him. But if she, if he's put in against someone like Juice Robinson, he'll work heel to sort of support that, you know, other baby face and give them the opportunity. Maiwatani's not afraid to do that either. But when she's up against Kigetsu, yeah, she's the true, the, the honourable ace and baby face. And so when they're fighting, you see that progression. So in the past, like, uh, Maya would be put down by the Death Valley driver finisher that Kigetsu uses. But as she gets more comfortable with it, she kicks out. She's expecting the miss that she blows, so she's able to avoid that. Maybe once, but isn't expecting a second one. All of her little uh, Kigetsu's tricks. And they build up and build up and build up. One of the classic images that you'll see with Stardom Wrestling is Kagetsu hanging Maya Watani with, I believe it's her t-shirt, and hanging her off the uh, barricade of Kurokan Hall in the hallways and just holds her up there, choking her, and then drops her onto the stairs below. It's an incredible visual, incredible spot, which they then continued to expand upon, and it became a running, running joke of how high will uh, Kagetsu drop Mayu next? <laughs> you know, so she went from hanging her off the, the sort of the second floor uh, balcony down where you walk down and get your snacks and stuff, and so for the next match they had at Kurokan Hall, they went up to the very top, an area that you wouldn't really know if you just watched wrestling on TV or on your computer and you don't, you're not actually visiting the venue. But if you've been to Kurokan Hall, you know there's a little staircase which takes you pretty much to the very roof of Kurokan Hall. Well, in the next match, Kagetsu dragged her up there, hung her off there, and dropped her off it as well. It's that kind of progression of story to in-ring storytelling that they do do pretty well, and you are rewarded with seeing. But it also gives you an idea of sort of Maya Watani is kind of crazy. She's willing to do things which maybe she shouldn't, but she just has this faith in her, I guess, her ability and her body that if she can visualize, if she thinks she can do it, she'll just bloody well go ahead and do it. Um, yeah, another um, example I'm, of. The, I'm gonna mm. sorry. I'm gonna need you to no. expand on the whole going up to kind of the roof and then dropping her thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, have you been to Kurokan Hall before? I have. When you first said it, I imagined you meant like the little balcony bit where fans can stand and they'll hang their giant banners over the edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's it is that's part as well. They haven't quite gone there yet. Although um, Kyoko Kimura has jumped off that to do a double foot stomp onto the the uh, bleachers, which is like one of the most ludicrous, ridiculous spots I've seen anywhere. Yes, that's a big, that's a, that's a very big, uh, a big drop. Very it's big. a very big drop and you're landing on just a mess Wood. of people and bleachers. Yeah. yeah, it's, I don't know how she didn't break her ankles, but yeah, yeah it's like what you would crazy. see in a, a, I mean, I'm not American, but you see in the films and like American high schools in the gym when they have the bleachers that come out and it's like row by row by row. It's mm -hmm. not like, you know, there's so much potential for error there you, yeah. you know you're, you're not landing on anything that's uh just flat or straight it's got multiple levels to it mm, it's a classic hong kong martial arts thing where you know they've got a choice of do we try and do this safely or do we just do it and it's like yeah we'll just do it <laughs> so that's what they tend to do but yeah so if you've been to kurikan hall right up the very back um where all the you know you've got the full sort of set of seats going all the way to the very back there's a little white staircase, which is just hanging in the corner. It goes up. It's like kind of touching the ceiling uh, when you get up there very top. Um, that's where they ended up going. So it's a good, like I would, without looking at the footage again, I'd say you're looking about a 10 foot drop, 
maybe from where she was hanging. And like she's hanging, you know, feet first, so it's just a, a double foot landing. Um, but it's still a good length and it's yeah, it makes just an incredibly scary visual. And it's a great representation of just how crazy these two were willing to go in their feud. It wasn't just a straight wrestling match. They trusted each other with their lives. They knew that they could trust each other. So they just went crazy, which is very entertaining for the fans. Well, I mean, we've talked a lot about Mayu in the ring so far and whatnot. But, mm. you know, to start with the most obvious question, who is Mayu Iwatani? She is an enigma. Is honestly the best way I could possibly put it. Um, again, to give you a comparison, an example, uh, if you're a fan of New Japan, you will probably know Kotobushi is the classic himbo. Um, incredibly talented, in, you know, but a bit dumb, a little bit clumsy, maybe can't trust him to remember to feed himself. Um, is a little bit like that. And she ends up in a hotel in Osaka thinking that they're performing in Osaka instead of Nagoya, which is about 140 kilometers away. So if this is starting to give you an idea that Mayu Watani, as talented as she is, is a little bit clumsy, a little bit klutzy, um, that's, that's really the impression that we get. And it's, if we're being honest, it's a part of what makes her so endearing because she represents this character a little bit in the ring. For as talented as she is and immensely confident she is as a wrestler, she'll put on an epic match and then she'll get on the microphone to talk to the fans and she'll trip over the microphone cord or she'll trip over the trophy in the middle of the ring or she'll go to say good evening to the fans and it's actually the middle of the day. This is the enigma that Maya Watani is, that sort of clash of incredible talent and just kind of not fully there when it comes to day-to-day -day stuff. I mean, having the comparison to Ibushi there sounds pretty perfect, uh, considering what you've said. And I know you mentioned some of those stories again in your uh, wrestling article about Mike mm. as well. Um, you know, we all know that Kota Ibushi is one of the greatest to step into a wrestling ring. But we also know that Kota Ibushi is uh, <laughs> probably not all there in the head, shooting fireworks off himself. He loves himself doing crazy things in ddt and uh you know he's notoriously uh when he's flown to america i think he's either lost his passport or his luggage or he's just really not had a clue what's going on he sent out a tweet saying that basically are saying they needed help at one point i think um not to anybody in particular but just tweeted it out and hoped that someone would someone would help him uh, and i mm. think uh, i think kenny omega at the time uh did help him out but no having who, who else but omega would yeah of course no but having kota ibushi as uh, a comparison to Mayu sounds perfect as well as, and you mentioned Tanahashi as well as a comparison for the in-ring style in that you, mm. know, you can play the heel when it's required. And of course, if you have seen Tanahashi's work in years gone by, he's very good at doing that and switching the gear when the time, uh, time calls for it. And that, that's what I love about a lot of the Japanese industry with it when it comes to wrestling is they don't need to confine themselves to those kind of rudimentary heel versus face things because a good performer can turn it on depending on the situation. They can read the audience, they can work out, okay, they want to cheer this person, let's make them cheer this person. Yeah, absolutely. So we've spoken lots about Mayu's matches, again, as we've said, mm. but what is her wrestling style like? What would you expect to see from Mayu when you stick on a Mayu match in Stardom? 
So a lot of it can come down to her opponent because she is very versatile. She can match the kind of wrestler she's facing. If she's facing Tam Nakano, she can go emotional. If she's going up against Momo Watanabe, she can trade kicks. Ideally, though, she'll wrestle a very frenetic, a fast pace with just enough high risk. She's not someone who relies on high risk moves, but she's someone who can implement them quite well. Um, whether it's the moonsault that she'll use as a finish, which she started using because she wanted to prove that her knee injury wasn't going to hinder her. She'd never done a moonsault before. The knee was, she'd come back from a knee injury. Fans were worried. So she's like, I'm going to do a move which explicitly targets her own knee upon landing and show that it's not stopping her. She'll do a suicide dive where she just kind of propels herself out the ring with no real care about how she's going to land. She's become very technical. She's very good at what she does. But she's retained the kind of mad, wild style, which feels like it's out of control. And when I first started watching Stardom in 2016, I came to know Stardom through the Freedom, the three daughters of Stardom, which is Io Shirai, Kari Hoja, and Maya Watani. Now, if anyone's seen Io Shirai, you know she's almost like genetically built to be the perfect wrestler. She can do anything, she can do it perfectly, and she looks like she just knows instantly the perfect way to do it. Kari uh, Hojo is very talented, kind of does a few different things. And outside of her elbow, it's kind of very traditional style. There's nothing too crazy about it. Iwatani growing up, she was the weakest of those three. And a lot of her story has been built about how she was never the best until she eventually just kept working and working and working until she became that number one wrestler. But to sort of counteract the fact she couldn't quite match the other two in pure talent, she kind of leaned into the fact that she was a little bit crazy. And so her style was that little bit wild. You'll see, you know, the suicide dive she does, she throws herself out there. Her super kick, she just kind of hits it with such impact that it pushes her back. Uh, it's a fascinating style to watch. It's very entertaining. And it really drives you to feel for her and support her because that combined with her incredible selling and bumping, um, which is she's world renowned for. You talk about best bumpers in the world, male, female, America, Japan, doesn't matter. Iwatani's got to be on the short list for the best. So between that and her style, she's very good at getting the fans behind her and just getting them to support her and believe that she's in pain, believe that she's suffering. Very much like Shawn Michaels was very good at like, oh, he's struggling, he's in pain. And especially at the end of his first run where, and second run where he was in pain because he's back. Um, Maya Watani is very much in that same pattern. You watch her match, you are like, ooh, is she okay? She struggles, she struggles, but it just draws you in as a fan. You just have to, you know, just cheer her on as best you can. I think one of my favorite moves of hers, and I really hope this is hers, and I'm not thinking of someone else, otherwise this is going to be a percent <laughs> but I'm the noob, I'm the noob, so I get a get Yeah, a show your card. noobness potentially. Um, is when like she'll have her opponent, they'll be like strung out, laying kind of on the bottom rope, and mm -hmm. she'll do the drop kick where she'll fly into them, she'll come, mm. you know, down into them, and they just like whiplash bounce off the bottom rope and everything. But she's really falling into them with that drop kick. There's no, no, like there's nothing soft about it. It's one of the stiffest drop kick, one of the stiffest drop kicks <laughs> I think I've seen. Just the yeah. way. She absolutely extends her leg, falls into him, full impact. She bounces off of him. They're flinging on the ropes like a ragdoll. Mm. Every mm. time I see it, it just blow I just love it. I think it looks absolutely it, it just destroys her opponents. 
Yeah, and that that is a you're correct. That is a Mayu Watani move. You will see other wrestlers in Stardom do it. Uh, Natsupoi is another one who's really good at that just kind of wrecking ball drop kick style because she'll throw the drop kick and she'll just kind of bounce off her opponent as they both fall out of the ring. Um, but Iwatani is kind of the first person. Uh, in that kind of group that was doing it. And she gets that real elevation on the drop kick. Uh, she gets a lot of height and just kind of emphasizes the full impact and the full landing. The one downside with that drop kick is that's how she got her first major injury in stardom. Um, there was She was the World of Stardom champion. She'd been holding the belt for a couple of months. She was getting pushed as the top star because Kari Hojo was heading to WWE. Io Shirai was heading to WWE, although she was delayed a little bit because of her neck. But they were entrusting Mayu to be that leader. And she'd never really had injuries before. She was doing that dropkick that you're talking about against Tony Storm. And she managed to dislocate her arm just because of that... Just you know, awkward little landing she had. And yeah, unfortunately, minutes into that match, she dislocated her arm. She wasn't able to continue going. She was out for six months. Tony Storm was given the championship as a result. And it did cause a little bit of issues because she wasn't meant to be champion and she wasn't going to be in Japan as much during that period, um, which was unfortunate. But like, just to show you the kind of person she is, that hasn't stopped her from doing that drop kick, getting that elevation and just kind of throwing her whole body into the move. Does Mayu have a specific finisher? For all the matches I have seen of hers, I feel like she does win with different moves she doesn't have her one that's mm. the definitive finish so one thing with stardom that you'll notice is most of the wrestlers especially the top wrestlers will have kind of a tiered system of finishing moves so for example Maya watani if you're going through the list she's got about four or five moves that she'll typically finish a match with for lower string opponents she'll use a dragon suplex uh, and then she's got a specific uh, finisher, a submission move, which you'll only use against the smaller, the lighter wrestlers, style like Kid, Azumi, which is, it's kind of hard to describe. It's a hanging dra uh, dragon sleeper. So she'll lift them up, she'll hook their opponent's legs kind of onto her legs as she's kind of semi-crouched, and then she'll hook the opponent's head underneath her shoulders and basically forces them into like a crescent moon shaped with, a ba with their back bending backwards. So as you can imagine, the, the opponent's got to be pretty flexible to take it, but it's an absolutely gnarly-looking finisher, um, which, yeah, looks fantastic. Then she's got her Moonsault, which she'll win a lot of matches with. And the final move, the super finisher that she has, it doesn't have an official name, but everyone kind of knows it as the two-stage dragon suplex. So she hooks them up like a dragon suplex, lifts them in the air and holds them in the air, and then the opponent's legs kind of get hooked behind Mayu's legs. And they're literally just hanging in the air, being held in the dragon suplex position. And then she'll whip them back into a bridging dragon. It doesn't always have the same pure level of impact, but the amount of kind of verticality and bend and angle she can get with that move, especially because she's, she, I mean, her back, she can bend her back into an absolutely beautiful bridging suplex so that combined to just it's a very aesthetic looking move more than anything that's kind of used as the super finisher if she hits that there's really only been i think kagetsu's kicked out of it and momo watanabe's kicked out of it i think that's it which shows you know just kind of that is the move that'll finish most people with but it all depends on the level of opponent she's not going to waste that move on a rookie 
rookies are just going to get a normal dragon suplex. Yeah, absolutely. Like I would. Yeah, it happens in new in New Japan, not Noob Japan. In actual New Japan, <laughs> um, you get the guys that face the young lions. Shingo will win with a pumping bomber rather than busting out Made in Japan or Last of the Dragon. Mm. You know, Okada wins with. Well, Okada actually never faces young lions. That's a terrible example. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, they 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 tend to win with their little signature moves rather than their finisher moves. Mm. I think it's a great way of showing the opponent wrestler's growth. Because if they've started out, they're losing to a dragon suplex or a Boston Crab, a basic move, then it shows they're their bottom of the barrel. But as they begin to grow, when they start kicking out of that move and forcing Mayo Watani or Shingo Takagi to start busting out their more you know, damaging finishing moves, even if they still lose the match, and they're probably going to because we're talking they're up against the best wrestlers in the respective promotions, but the fact that they're able to force them to use these higher-impact moves, it's a great way of showing progression without giving them shock wins and devaluing that kind of shock-surprise upset. So I know you've mentioned a few names already. You've mentioned Kagetsu mm-hmm. and uh, Io. But who mm. would you say are Mayu's best opponents? Like if someone wanted to seek out a feud or rivalry or just a string of matches to get an idea of who Mayu is, what opponents would you recommend for first? So, so my first thought is obviously Io Shirai. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, I think they've had the best series of matches of anyone in stardom. Uh, look, their, their stories go back right to pretty much the beginning of EO's run in stardom, 2012-2013. They've teamed together as Thunder Rock, they were together as the Freedom. But if you're looking at series of matches against each other, if you go from about May 2016, which is the May Gold World of Stardom title match between them, then they had a match at the year-end climax of the same year in December, and then June the following year, that series of three matches shows the progression of Mayu Watani's character, Io Shirai's character, who starts off as a face alongside Mayu, then turns heel, trying to encourage Mayu to get better. She forms Queen's Quest, goes full heel. So the, the change in character from both of them and their attitudes between the May match and the December match is night and day. And it's a great example of how character can define story and define match style. So they have those two matches and then the final in June is a great sort of bit of storytelling three-match series. Again, any match with her and Kagetsu, um, the further through the uh, stories you go with them, the later on in their career, the crazier they get, the more stupid stunts you'll see them doing. Uh, Momo Watanabe, they had a couple of great matches together as well. Recently, um, Tam Nakano, they've had some good matches there. Takumi Aroha, I think she and Mayu had the stardom match of the year in 2020. They had two really good matches, one in February when the crowds were at their peak just before COVID, and then a match, I think, in September or August? No, October, I think, sorry, where they didn't have the uh, fans, but again, shows that progression of storytelling from one match to the next. And that's another great two-match example to see storytelling from one match to the other and callbacks to different spots. So they're kind of the best ones. Look, any top-tier wrestler in stardom, if they go against Mayu Watani, you're probably going to get a good match. But in terms of seeing just the best of the best and in terms of storytelling, I would check out those matches. So Mayu is purely stardom, right? I don't. I think I'm right saying she's not... I know she's, she was the Ring of Honor Women's Champion for a while, but mm. her home base has always been stardom. She's never been a main part of another roster, right? 
Yeah, that's correct. So she started training with Stardom when Stardom was beginning. So the very first show Stardom had, which was, let me just check the date so I can sound smart, um, January 23, 2011, Stardom had their very first match. That was the very first match that Mayu ever had. She wrestled Arisa Hoshiki. They were both part of the traineeship, the very first class that Stardom had. So Mayu started her career with Stardom when they started. She's the only wrestler who's been there from the very beginning. She hasn't taken a break at all. She did do Ring of Honor. She went there as a Stardom representative. They had a little bit of an alliance for about a year and a half. You'd see a few Stardom wrestlers travel over. So she wrestled over there for a bit. She won the Women of, Women of, Women of Honor Championship and then dropped it back to Kelly Klein at Madison Square Garden as part of that Ring of Honor New Japan combo show. But outside of that, she also had a brief appearance in Lucha Underground alongside Shirai and Hojo. She wrestled under the name Yuri. They only oh, had one match. Sorry, was that, was that the match against Pentagon where Pentagon yes. on like all three of them? I've seen yeah, that. Yeah, so oh, the wow. Freedom faced Pentagon. It was Hojo, then Iwatani, and then Shirai, back to back to back. It was a controversial match. You know, there's not too many intergender matches that get, a you know, always cause a little bit of issue. Um, but look, I, as a fan of both Pentagon and the Freedom, it was one of my favourite Lucha Underground matches, and they didn't hold back at all. It was fantastic. Yeah, no, I remember, I can't remember why I came across that. Um, I think I was maybe looking up more about Io, EO, Io. Mm. Is, it, is it EO or Io? It's EO. EO. Mm. Uh, I think I was maybe looking up more about EO, just matches, and I saw this one that was against Pentagon, and I was like, well, mm. that's, and I'd never watched Lucha Underground either, and so it was all a, a very new and overwhelming experience, seeing these three <laughs> tremendous joshi wrestlers in this very bizarre environment that was lucha underground but it's absolutely it it's like a such a its own world of wrestling that match and i suppose lucha underground as a whole yeah lucha underground is just like a fever dream and if you come in with no real context it can be absolutely crazy so they came in they only had two appearances they were representing the black lotus triad um which were targeting pentagon um which led to that sort of Handicap gauntlet match, yeah. So but she's been with those appearances. It's just been stardom. So she's been with stardom since literally day one. Uh, do you think yeah. she's a stardom lifer? Because you know we've had Kyrie, of course, has gone to WWE and she's had mm -hmm. pretty good success, all things considered. And the same for EO. You know she's doing done phenomenally in NXT. I don't know how things are still going now with the change to NXT two but do you think Star do you think Mayu will stay with Stardom or could you see her trying her chance in America or somewhere else? Look, I mean, part of this could be personal bias and not wanting to quote unquote give her up to the American scene. I think she's a stardom lifer. And the main reason I think that is not a, she's very indebted to stardom and Rossi Ogawa, who's the president of stardom. Because when she joined stardom and when she started training, she traveled from her rural Yamagata town to Tokyo, she had 50 bucks on her and she literally lived with Rossi um, initially. You know, he helped her sort of basically live as she was sort of training and stuff. And the one thing he said to her was, I don't want you to sort of pay me back, just become a big star. And so I do believe she feels a little bit indebted to the company and she feels connected and kind of a major part of the company, which makes sense because she's been there from the beginning. The other thing is like, kind of like a bushy, she kind of needs to have her hand held when she's traveling 
And every impression I get is she probably doesn't want... She's not that kind of person who desires to live abroad and to sort of live in a country where she doesn't speak the language because her English is very basic. Like, you would expect a lot of Japanese wrestlers who aren't focusing on English. So I, I don't think she would feel at home away from Japan like maybe EO does in Florida. Um, I think she'll travel there, she'll do a couple of tours, but I feel like she gets a lot of anxiety um, outside of that. Right, yeah, sure. No, I mean, for you know, there's rumours of Kyrie coming back to stardom, isn't there? Maybe by the time this podcast goes live, that will have happened and this will be outdated and everyone will be over the moon. But, <laughs> you know, I think there's so much talk about AEW's women roster and how they deserve more time and perhaps, you know, they might need a bump up of her name like Mayu. Do you think she would be mm-hmm. tempted? You know, you've had... Guy Emmy Sakura from Chocker Pro and things like that uh, go to AEW. Do you think she might sharpen AEW in just kind of a limited capacity even? Uh, look, if there was a partnership between Stardom and AEW, I think, you know, she'd be okay with doing that, much like she did Ring of Honor. I'm not sure there will be, though. I know a lot of people look and go, oh, well, New Japan and AEW are working together. They're both under Bushi Road, so why wouldn't they work together? But it's they're separate companies, and I think they rubbed Rossi Agawa the wrong way because when Maya was over there in America working for Ring of Honor and they were kind of forming the basis of AEW, they tried to recruit Maya as kind of that big Joshi import to start the company with. And she decided, obviously, she wanted to stay with Stardom. And from all reports I've seen is that kind of pissed Rossi off. And because of that, he kind of doesn't have any interest with working with AEW. I think if they had targeted any other stardom wrestler, probably wouldn't have gotten the same reaction. But again, he feels very close to Mo because of that same history of her coming up and, you know, learning and living through him, basically. Um, Yeah, because of that, obviously, stranger things have happened. We've seen incredibly strange things in wrestling through 2021 and 2020. I would be... Very surprised if Stardom and AEW have a working relationship. But if they do, I see no reason why Maya Watani wouldn't be on that very first ship shipment of talent going over there. Well, I've got one question left for you, Trent. And mm-hmm. it's hopefully an easy one. But Ooh. just to end things, if you had to suggest one sing- just one match for the listeners of this podcast to go and seek out that really captures mm-hmm. and shows you who Mayu is, how great she is, just really encapsulates who Mayu is, what one single match would you suggest? So if, if you'll give me uh, a cheat response, can I give two answers? No. Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> so look, I've mentioned it before, year-end climax 2016 versus Io Shirai. I think that's an incredible example of not only her in-ring ability, but sort of seeing the emotion that she can tell in the story. Because by that point, that's the match where Io has already turned heel and there's a real passionate fight. And so instead of just being a good showdown between two friends, it's a war between two people who kind of detest each other at that stage. Fantastic example, arguably the best match in Stardom's history. The other match I would suggest is Kagetsu's retirement match, or one of her retirement matches in Osaka, which happened in February, I can't remember the exact date, but it was a tag team match, Mayu Uitani and Kigetsu versus Momo Watanabe and Jungle Kiona. 
This match is a lot more lighthearted than the other match with Io Shirai, but it's a, and it's a great example of kind of the fun-loving, um, free attitude of Mo. She gets a little bit heelish. She starts doing the Oedo Tai tactics, the rubber band spot where they'll you know attach a rubber band to someone's mouth and then pull it to the other end of the arena and just let go. Um, you know, starts to toggle with you know distracting the referee and doing evil things but you can just see how much pure fun she's having with one of her best friends in kagetsu and just three of the best other workers in stardom full stop so those two matches would be kind of my go-to to get a good taste of my watani you get a serious you know hard fought match and something a bit more fun and reminiscent of her character yeah, no, that sounds good. I watched the one with Io, Io not mm. long ago um, and done the gif of it, and that one absolutely blew me away. I think that's one that, you know, when I think how Meltzer has only just recently given Stardom their first five-star match, plus mm. um, how he just must not have seen that match because that is a match more than deserving of at least five stars. You and saw like... one of the two matches in 2016, and he gave it either four and a half or four and three quarters. I can't remember if it was May or December, but he has rated one of those two. Okay, right, fair enough. Mm. And I like the idea of just having the dichotomy there with the two different matches that you can see just how she is arguably one of the best wrestlers in the world in the ring, but she's also this goofy person that loves mm. wrestling and, you know, outside of the ring, she's a different person. Much like you said about Kairobushi, you can watch a match from Wrestle Kingdom or, you know, the G1 finals against Tanahashi where you get this very <laughs> serious side of Ibushi. And then you can watch him in DDT, uh, pile driving Michael Nakazawa into a toilet. And who wouldn't want to say that? Exactly. So yeah. at the top of the podcast, I gave myself a four on my knowledge of Mayu. And mm-hmm. now that I've spoken to Trent and he's taken me to school, I'm going to bump that number up to at least a six. I want to be ambitious and say a seven, but I don't want to get give you too much of a big head there, Trent. <laughs> you, you couldn't dare. It's already pretty big at the moment. Oh, can I give you one quote to maybe bump it to a seven, though, just to learn a little bit more about her character? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, so this is from an interview she did with uh, Mugako Ozaki uh, last year, and it got translated into English by Dana, who... It just a side sort of side point. She does fantastic translations. Check her out on Twitter. Fantastic resource for English-speaking fans of Stardom. But she's talking to Mayu Watani and basically the early stages of how she's growing up as a wrestler. And I just love this sort of little patch because it shows just kind of the quirky nature of Mayu. Um, and Mayu then says, I didn't put in any effort. She hated practice and was always skipping it until one day one of her senior wrestlers lost their patience. Mayu was ordered to spar for 90 minutes until she was so tired and couldn't move. And they shouted at her, get down on your knees and apologize. Swear you'll never skip another day in your life. I said to them, I'm sorry, I'll never skip practice again. And then I skipped the next day because after such an intense practice, you'd want to take the day off, right? I worked hard (laughs) the day before, so I figured that was good enough. Is that really okay, a person like that? Mugiko nervously asked her. Do you still skip practice? And Mo immediately responded, no, not at all. Mugiko felt relieved until Mo continued. I don't conceive of it as slacking off anymore. If I don't want to do it, I just won't go. That's not skipping. She said it so confidently, I almost fell out of my chair. (laughs) That's fantastic. So that's, again, the dichotomy of Mayu. Incredibly talented, incredibly crazy, 
but she's just kind of a little bit of a relaxed airhead and as someone who can procrastinate with the best of them i relate so much to that paragraph set oh that's a perfect way to wrap up uh wrap up my i think with that fantastic quote um, I will say after the quote, you've actually knocked me down a number. I'm going to go back to what oh. I was at the beginning. No, of course not. Um, <laughs> no, easily a six, maybe a seven. Everyone, please be sure to follow Trent on Twitter at One Up Culture. That's the number mm-hmm. one. He's one of my favorite follows. He keeps me up to date with all things Joshi, not just Stardom, but he's very much into Choco Pro as well. He's got fantastic features about Stardom and Choco Pro on WrestleIn.com. He's a great follow. He's got a wealth of great opinions. If he recommends a match, then it's definitely worth your time. Please take the time to follow him again at One Up Culture. Trent, thank you for joining me. No worries. Thank you. And if you didn't want me to get a big head, you just screwed it up with that last patch. Thank you very much. <laughs> so much like taking a gym, a gym, much like taking a gym selfie, does the podcast count if I don't ask you to subscribe, rate, and review? If you would like to come on the podcast as an enthusiast or as a noob, please reach out to me on Twitter at KieranRH2. That was Noob Japan. We are WrestleIn, and now we're out.